You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. 2 Samuel, 24 chapters in 2 Samuel. I do believe uh, we will get through this fairly quickly tonight. Uh, there's a lot of familiar stories uh, that will go through really rapid fire. Uh, so um, I'm hoping to build off of your familiar- familiarity with the book uh, to be able to launch into really the application of, I mean, why is First and Second Samuel in the Bible? That's really, uh, along with this series, not only what is the book about, but why is it there? Uh, I really want to be able to see why is it there, and the easiest way you can answer that question with any book of the Bible is find out how it points to Jesus and you will know why the book is there. Find out how it points to Jesus. And we're going to see it's a very simple thing in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel pointing to Jesus that we will apply at the very end. So we'll have a little quiz about 1 Samuel. So 1 and 2 Samuel, remember, are two different books in our Bible, but they're all one same story. And it's all the story of how Israel transfers under the rule of what type of government to a different type of government. What would it be? Go ahead and raise your hand. Christian. Judges to a united kingdom. Yes. Now it's going to illustrate or it's going to explain this transition, better words, it's going to explain this transition by telling the story of four men. Tell me one of those four men. Who would one of those four men be in First and Second Samuel? Brianna? David's one. Miss Leanne? Saul is another one. Over here. Brother Philip? Eli is one. And who's the last one? There's a fly in here. And if he lands on... Hang on. Oh, he's tempting me. It's going to bother me. Okay. McKenna. Samuel. Yes. Okay. So you have Eli, Samuel, Saul, and... David. Uh, Let's see here. I had one other uh, question here that I wanted to bring out, and it really goes along with the... So Saul and David, I mean, both of them had their faults, correct? Uh, All of those those four men we have seen throughout it all. So Eli, we saw the failure of the priesthood, and he was obviously not who he should have been. Uh, We have Samuel. Samuel was a good man, but even he wasn't able to train his sons in a way to take over for him. And Israel, when they see that his sons are not the same as as he is, uh, that's when they demand a king. Uh, And then Saul, obviously, he has his fault. Started off well, correct? Started off well uh, because he was humble. But then pride came in. Uh, now, yeah, Saul was getting big as far as his kingship was concerned, but how God put it was, hey, you're big in your own eyes right now. When you were small in your own eyes, then everything was good, and that's when God made you king, but now you're big. Now, now you're proud. Uh, and it's amazing. The Bible says that God actually made David big to other people's eyes. God magnified David. So basically the same language that the Bible uses for Saul in a negative way, uses for David in a positive way, okay? And then uh, David, even though he is a man after God's own heart, and we're going to see that, he makes his mistakes as well. And he has areas of sin, areas of weakness, times of fear, uh, times where he has a little bit of a temper. If you uh, read the story of him and Abishag and uh, her husband, Uh, He's got a little bit of a temper, but he's able to be reasoned with. Now, what is the chapter, this is the last one here, what is the chapter in Deuteronomy that tells us that God did expect Israel to have a king at some point? Miss Fiji? Deuteronomy 17. Did you read that? Did you read that last week? Did you see that? Where God basically says, look, when you ask for a king, like all the other nations have, This is the type of king he's going to be. And he's not going to be like the other nations. He's not going to be a foreigner. He's going to be somebody from your tribe. But he's not going to multiply horses to himself. He's not going to multiply wives to himself for political reasons. Okay, we see where that's going, right? 
he is going to actually write out his own copy of the book of the law. He's not going to have a scribe do it for him. He's going to write it out himself so that he can read it and he can follow what he is supposed to do. Uh, that is God's idea of the king. Saul, wrong tribe, wrong timing, wrong type of person, only picked because of his looks, not because of his heart. Uh, but God promised him, look, as long as you put me first, we'll, we'll work things out. Okay. Now, eventually, God did want to have a king, and we see that by the fact that God chooses David. By the time we get to the end of 1 Samuel, three of the men are dead. Eli's dead, Samuel's dead, Saul's dead. So we're just left with David, and 2 Samuel in its basic form is a biography of David. And it's split up into these three parts from how I see it. Chapter 1 through 4, 5 through 10, and 11 through 24. Chapter 1 through 4 is David's rise to the throne. <clears throat> Chapter 5 through 10 is David's reign on the throne. And chapter 11 through 24 is David's reproach. And I base that word off of Proverbs 14. Uh, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And in chapter 11 through 24, we're going to see David's reproach. So how did 1 Samuel end? It ends with all of us knowing that Saul is dead. But as far as Israel is concerned, and definitely David, they have no idea. They do not know how poorly this last battle with the Philistines have gone. So we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 1, if we're there already. And we're going to read in verse 1 through 4 about the story coming to David about Israel's defeat. Verse number 1 here. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites and David had abode two days in Ziklag. It came even to pass on the third day that behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and the earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. And David said unto him, from whence comest thou? And he said unto him, out of the camp of Israel and I escaped. And David said unto him, how went the matter, I pray thee, tell me. And he answered that the people are fled from battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. Heavenly Father, as we look through this book, help us to understand the meaning. We thank you so much for your word. Please bless the reading of your word and the study of it to our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen. An Amalekite is telling this story, and the story coming from an Amalekite, that if you see in verse 1, David has actually just come from a war with these people. He doesn't believe the Amalekite right away, and he asks, he asks him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? And the Amalekite tells this story that doesn't match what the Bible says happened to Saul in the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, it doesn't match the story. And uh, instead, but he has Saul's crown in his hand. He has Saul's bracelet in his hand. And the Amalekite basically tells David, upon Saul's request, I killed him because he was suffering. And instead of David celebrating, instead of David being happy, David's relationship to Saul, good or bad right now? Bad. It's not complicated. It's bad. Saul wants to kill him has wanted to kill him for years. And instead of, David mourn, or instead of David celebrating, he mourns. He rents his clothes from morning to even. He fasts. They don't eat anything. And then he actually takes the Amalekite and he says, according to your own words, you stretched your hand upon the Lord's anointed. And he puts the Amalekite to death. Now, everybody knew that Saul wanted to kill David. The Amalekites seemed to believe that David felt the same way about Saul. So he is under the impression, if I tell David that I killed Saul, I'm going to be elevated to honor. I killed his enemy. And David shows, no, that's absolutely not it at all. And uh, they cry and they mourn his death. He even writes a song to lament the, the Saul and uh, the death of Saul and Jonathan in the end of chapter 1. So Saul is dead. Who's the rightful heir to the throne? Well, Jonathan's dead too, okay? But according to God, who's the rightful heir to the throne? David, okay? But as you can imagine, it's not just going to be a simple transfer of power. It's going to be complicated. How is David going to assume the throne? 
And that's exactly the question that he asks in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Lord, what am I supposed to do? Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord says, yes, you're going to go up. And he goes up to Judah, and the men of Judah anoint David to be king over the house of Judah. However, a man named Abner... Now, you need to remember these names. I'm going to be bringing out these names, and they're important characters to remember all throughout. And I'll tell you when it's an important character. Abner, important character. Abner has another idea in mind. He goes and finds one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and he makes Ishbosheth king over the rest of the tribes of Israel. David remains king over Judah with a man named Joab as his commander-in-chief. Okay, so let's stop right here, and let's talk about these characters. Have you ever heard the, the, the saying, blood runs thicker than water? You're going to run into that a lot in 2 Samuel, okay? Uh, so let's go over these characters here. You have David, who is the king of Judah. Ishbosheth, who is the king of Israel, and Saul's son. Abner, who is Ishbosheth's commander and Saul's cousin. And if you read earlier in 1 Samuel, Abner and David have a history with each other. So when David kills Goliath and Saul says, bring me David, guess who brings David to Saul? Abner. And then the second time that David has an opportunity to kill Saul, Abner is asleep next to him. And David calls him out. Hey, Abner, if you were any good at your job, I wouldn't have been able to steal Saul's spear and his pitcher. How do you think Abner feels about David? Little, yeah, a little angry at him? Sure. And then you have Joab. Joab is David's commander and David's nephew. Now, Joab also has two brothers, and we're going to run into them, Abishai and Asahel. Split kingdom right now, okay? How long do you think that's going to last before a conflict? Not long at all, okay? And what happens is you actually have Joab and his men run into Abner and his men, and they come up with this twisted game. You choose 12 people, I'll choose 12 people, and they're going to fight, and it ends with all 24 of them dying, and civil war breaks out. Now, Joab wins the first battle against Abner, kills 360 of his men. Joab only loses 20, one of those being Asahel. Abner kills Asahel, Joab's brother, David's nephew. We following? Okay? Good, good. If, I, if you're not following, then just give me a confused look. Okay? Perfect. So, Judah keeps on following after Israel, or Joab keeps following after Abner, and they come to the stalemate here. By this time, Benjamin has met up with Judah, uh, and Abner basically calls out and says, look, if, if we're going to go head-to-head here, it's not going to end well for anybody. And Joab agrees. And he says, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. So they call a truce, and they bury at, uh, Asahel. But Joab is never going to forget what Abner did to his brother. Okay, so remember that. Put that in your pocket. And this is only the beginning of a long period of war between what the Bible says is David and the house of Saul. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger. The house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. David's family is growing. It's obvious that God is blessing him. However, two men standing in between David and the throne right now, Ishbosheth and Abner. Those two men are standing in between David and ruling all of Israel as he rightfully should according to God. Suffice it to say, Abner and Ishbosheth have a falling out. And Abner actually tells Ishbosheth, I'm defecting, and I'm going to David's side. And he goes to David, and he explains to David, I'm no longer with Ishbosheth. I want to serve you. David says, Deal on one condition. You need to find my old wife, Michael, and bring her along with you. We didn't talk about it last week, but Saul, out of spite for David, actually gave Michael to another man while she was still married to David. So David says, Abner, you can come work for me if you bring Michael. And he does. And Abner becomes the ambassador, if you will, to David, to the tribes of Israel. And he starts going around to these tribes and saying, we need to make David king. 
This all happens behind Joab's back. Joab comes back from a battle, and he finds out that in his absence, David has made Abner kind of a co-commander. How do you think he feels? No, 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 no. He goes up to David. What do you think he's doing? You really think he's trying to help you, or don't you think he might be trying to spy on us? So Joab secretly goes after Abner, acts like he's a friend, goes up to him, kills him. All right, so Joab, okay, here's something you need to know about Joab. Don't mess with Joab. And you're going to find out, I mean, he is black and white, harsh, doesn't care if he hurts your feelings, doesn't care if he kills you in the middle of the street. If you do anything bad to him, Joab's going to come for you. Remember that, okay? David, again, mourns Abner. He actually follows, he's actually one of the pallbearers. In the, in the funeral for Abner. And look at what happens when all of Israel sees how David reacts to Abner's death. Okay, um, Look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 36. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. As whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner the son of Ner. And the king said unto his servants, Know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel? And I am this day weak, though anointed king. I never wanted this to happen. Yes, Abner was standing in between me and the throne, but I never wanted this to happen. This is not what I wanted. Uh, this is not how I wanted to become king. Who is the one person that is left standing in between David and the throne? Gazuntite. Who is it? Ishbosheth, yes. Ishbosheth in chapter 4 is assassinated by his own men. And again, like with, uh, like with the Amalekite, these assassins think David's going to love us because we killed his enemy. So they go up to David with the news that they killed Ishbosheth, and he tells them, You know, somebody told me this once before that they killed one of my enemies just to get in a little bit of favor with me, and I put them to death too. How much more do you think I'm going to put you to death for this righteous man? Did Ishbosheth do anything wrong? No, he was really just a puppet in the hands of Abner, and David knew that. And now, deep down inside, however, look at what David says in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity? He knows that God is working here to clear his way to the throne. But David didn't like how it was happening. All this, all this murdering on my behalf. No, that's not what I want at all. He puts those assassins to death as well. David is showing himself completely different than any other king in history so far. Okay, moving on here. Chapters 5 through 10, we, can, we begin part 2. David's reign over all Israel. I mean, his path to the throne is clear. And in chapter 5, we see David's coronation. And David had won the hearts of the men of Israel because of his heart for justice. And uh, they crown him king. And his first act of king is to choose a capital city. Right now, he's in Hebron. He wants to find somewhere more centralized. What city would be a perfect spot? Jerusalem. What does the Bible say about Jerusalem two times? Beautiful for situation. I mean, it's perfect. Problem. Jerusalem was still occupied by the Jebusites. Had been for centuries. Jerusalem was considered impregnable. In fact, you can read in this chapter, they basically had a saying that Jerusalem was so strong, the blind and the lame could, uh, could defend it. It was that impregnable. David comes upon it immediately takes it over. Something that Israel couldn't do for centuries and had tried to do, David did right away. And he changes the name from Jerusalem to Zion, but the people kind of, um, uh, a term of endearment, they call it the city of David. All right, so that happens in chapter 5. Look in verse 10 through 12. David went on and grew great. The Lord, of hosts, uh, the Lord God of hosts was with him. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees and carpenters and masons. They built David in a house. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. His family keeps growing. So do his enemies. 
He has more victory or more uh, battles with the Philistines, and he gains victory over them. And you can see that they are both due to his prayer and his reliance on God. David's doing very well. Chapter 6, we see David's convictions. So chapter 5, his coronation. Chapter 6, his convictions. Jerusalem is the political capital. Well, now we need a religious capital. How do we do that? Well, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant from where it is in the house of Abinadab to Jerusalem. It doesn't go exactly as planned. David is very sincere in what he wants to do, but he doesn't obey the way he's supposed to bring the Ark. Instead of it being borne by men in staves, you know, and carrying it, he puts it on a new cart with oxen, and along the way, uh, the oxen stumble, and the ark goes to fall over, and one of the men named Uzzah puts his hand out to stop the ark from falling, and boom, God strikes him dead. Hey, sincerity is great, but it does not overcome obedience. We need to obey. We need to do things God's way, and that's what we're teaching. David gets scared, gets a little upset as well. For three months, he leaves the ark where it is uh, in a man's house named Obed-Edom, God starts blessing Obed-Edom's house, and David says, okay, there's nothing wrong with the ark. There's wrong with the way we carried the ark. He carries it right this time, brings it into Jerusalem, much celebration. Michael doesn't like it because David is dancing for the Lord with all of his might, uh, and she basically thinks that he's just trying to parade himself, and, and he, she's basically saying, you're not acting like a king, you're acting like a fool. And he's saying, no, I'm not acting like the king of other nations, I'm acting like a king who's pointing people to their real king. And that's what I'm supposed to do, isn't it? And God strikes Michael with barrenness. She never has a child. Chapter 7, David's covenant. David tells Nathan the prophet, another important man, tells Nathan the prophet, I'm dwelling in a house of cedar. God's presence is in a tent. I want to build, Dave, I want to build God a house. Nathan tells him, do it. But then God tells Nathan that night, Tell David, no, thank you. I actually want to build you a house. And in verse 8 through 16, we see the Davidic covenant. And God is telling David, I am going to establish your kingdom forever in one of your sons. One of your sons also is going to build me this temple that you want to build me. Now, a lot of the Davidic covenant was fulfilled in Solomon, but not all of it. It was only fully fulfilled with, who do you think? Jesus Christ, absolutely, okay? David hears, prays, thanks God for the blessing. Look, David sincerely desired to build God a temple. It was a good desire. It was a desire that he had for the rest of his life, but it wasn't God's will. When God tells you no, it's because he has something better planned. Always remember that. Chapter eight, David's conquest. This is basically David's trophy case, all of these victories over the Philistines, Moab, Zobah, and the Syrians. And these aren't just big victories. These are landslide victories over people that it shouldn't be that easy to beat. And David is winning by a landslide. His reputation is growing. And I mean, just uh, it keeps on going. Even foreign leaders are uniting with David. And with every victory, David is taking gold and brass and spoil and putting it to the side. What do you think he's putting it to the side for? The temple. Absolutely. Look in verse 15 of chapter 8. David reigned over all Israel. David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. And if you read verse 16 through 18, David is politically, historically, religiously, militarily set. Chapter 9, David's compassion. Remember, he had made a covenant with Jonathan that if anything were to happen to Jonathan, and once David became king, that he was going to take care of Jonathan's household. Well, there's only one person in Jonathan and Saul's household left, a man named Mephibosheth. So you have Ishbosheth, and then you have Mephibosheth, who is another one of Saul's sons, crippled, can't take care of himself. David calls him in and says, Mephibosheth, I'm giving you all of Saul's land. It's yours now. Mephibosheth had a servant named Ziba, another important person, and David commits Ziba to watch over all of that land, and whatever the land brings in, it's Ziba's and Mephibosheth. You, you figure that out amongst yourself. Ziba, you take care of Mephibosheth with it, but Mephibosheth, you are eating at my table from here on out. Only a man after God's own heart could show so much grace and mercy 
to a man like Mephibosheth, but that's David's compassion. Chapter 10, more conquests, gains another huge victory over the Ammonites and the Syrians. Could things be going better for David right now? Victory everywhere, riches coming in and spoils. He's showing compassion. He's leading with justice and judgment. People are all behind him. Even foreign leaders are coming behind him. Things are going well. Oh, chapter 11. One of the saddest chapters in the Bible. And it starts off with David's reproach. David stays behind from battle. He's walking on his roof. He sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing. Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which is one of David's mighty men. He inquires after her, finds out exactly who he is, who she is, commits adultery with her anyway, finds out later that she's pregnant, tries to bring Uriah home from battle to cover his sin. It doesn't work, so he has Uriah murdered. Immediately after Uriah is murdered, he marries Bathsheba. And, I mean, do the math. The sooner he marries her, the better, as far as that is the timeline is concerned in his mind. And... Nine months later, you know, the baby's born. And uh, so for nine months, David is living it a lie, hiding his sin. And at the end of chapter 11, the Bible just puts it very plainly. What the thing that David did displeased. And notice the progression. David tarried. David saw. David looked. Listen, seeing can be an accident. Looking is always on purpose. Okay? That's what David did. Inquired, took. Chapter 12, David's sin finds him out. Nathan the prophet reveals David's sin. David does repent. God forgives him. But he lets him know that consequences are going to fall. And immediately the child that he has born with Bathsheba falls ill and he dies. After the child's death, something incredible happens. David and Bathsheba have multiple sons together. One of them is named Solomon. And the Bible says in verse 24 of chapter 12, the Lord loved him. The Lord loved Solomon. In fact, Nathan refused to call Solomon Solomon. He called him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. Only God's forgiveness can do that. Only God's mercy can do that. In the end of chapter 12, David is still winning military victories, but the floodgates are about to open on him. It's coming up on him, it's coming up on his family, coming up on his kingdom, and really, chapter 13 through 26 is all consequences. Now, this is all going to be rapid fire here. Chapter 13, Amnon, his firstborn son, assaults his half-sister Tamar. David doesn't do anything about it. Well, what is he supposed to do about it? Son, I'm disappointed that you did exactly what I did. So David is in, what, you see the position that David is in. For two years, he doesn't do anything about it, so Absalom does something about it. Absalom kills Amnon, and then Absalom thinks, I can't face dad, so he runs for three years to Geshur. Now, after three years, David loves Absalom. He misses Absalom. He wants to bring Absalom back. And Joab knows this, so in chapter 14, he hashes this plan to bring Absalom back, and it does work. But when Absalom comes back, Absalom and David don't see each other for two years. Now we're thinking, wait a second, didn't David miss Absalom? But no, 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 you have to put yourself in the position of these people. Of course, David misses Absalom, but Absalom killed his firstborn son. It's not that simple of him coming back and just forgiving and everything's fine. Every time he looks at Absalom, who's he going to see? He's going to see Amnon, and every time he thinks of what Amnon did, what is he thinking? What did I do? Uh, David is in a horrible position. He finally ends up seeing Absalom, but uh, in chapter 15, Absalom betrays David. He gathers, he steals the hearts of the men of Israel by his charm and his good looks, and he leads this military coup. David figures out about it, and he flees. He has to leave Jerusalem. He only leaves ten concubines behind. He leaves one man, another important man named Hushai, which is one of David's advisors, he leaves his behind, him behind kind of like a spy. Hushai, you tell me kind of what's going on and if I'm safe and everything. And only a couple hundred people follow David. Absalom is so cunning and so charming. 
he actually turns David's key advisor, Ahithophel, against David. And Ahithophel defects and goes and starts working for Absalom rather than for David. David finds out about this while he's fleeing, and he says, oh, man, Lord, if you do not turn the counsel of Ahithophel, I'm in trouble. Ahithophel was a smart man. He was David's lead advisor for a reason. As he's going out, he finds Ziba. Remember who's Ziba? Mephibosheth's servant, okay? Ziba comes up to Mephibosheth with no, or to David with no Mephibosheth. David asks, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba looks back at him and he says, he's happy that this is happening to you. He's really happy that you're gone from the kingdom. He walks a little bit further and a man named Shimei comes out. Shimei is one of Saul's family. Shimei starts cursing him, throwing rocks at him, kicking dust in his feet, spitting in his face, saying, David, you deserve everything that's happening to you. This is because of your blood guiltiness. This is because of what you did with Saul. This is because of what you, what everybody else knew you did. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Absalom comes back, takes over Jerusalem. The men put him up as king. And he looks at Ahithophel and he says, all right, well, what now, Ahithophel? And Ahithophel says, go into the ten concubines that your dad left behind. And it's a mess. But look at what the Bible says about Ahithophel in chapter 16, verse 23. The counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. He is a powerful man. People hang on his words. So in chapter 17, he goes for broke. And he says, Absalom, give me 12,000 men, and we're going to chase after David while he's weak and afraid, and we're going to kill him. Absalom says, that's a great idea. But then he looks at Hushai, which is also one of his advisors, but David's spy, and he says, Hushai, what do you think about it? And Hushai says, Ooh, okay, forget about taking 12,000 men. Why don't you just wait, gather all of the men of Israel, and you personally lead them, and you kill David yourself? Absalom says, better idea. Now, what we're thinking is, wait a second, isn't Hushai on David's side, and yet he's telling Absalom to take this whole? Okay, but Hushai is buying David time. Okay, 12,000 men, that could be mustered up in an instant. Gathering all the men of Israel, which he knew would, would uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it would sound good to Absalom, as vain as he was. You lead all the men of Israel and kill your father. Ooh, I like that. Gives David time. He tells David, this is what's happening. David escapes east over Jordan. Ahithophel sees that David escapes and kills himself. Now, there's a couple reasons why, and this is what the teens are arguing about right now, okay? So, first of all, let's say, let's just think of it practically, okay? Ahithophel kills himself. Why in the world would he kill himself? If David wins over Absalom, he's going to be hung as a traitor. If Absalom wins, Hushai's going to get the credit. And to Ahithophel, a man who's so used to everybody hanging on his words like they're everything, and that's a pretty big deal, too. But if you do some study, you will find out that Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. How do you think he feels about what David did to his granddaughter and his grandson-in-law? So when he sees David escapes, and by the way, while David escapes, his army grows from about a, a three or 400 to thousands of people. And Hushai reminded everybody, sure, take 12,000 men against David, but David is still David. He is a valiant man. If you lose, nobody's going to follow you again. Take everybody. And Ahithophel knows, yeah, he's right. Okay. So now that David has amassed 10,000 people, doesn't matter if we take all men of Israel, probably going to lose. And the man who killed my grandson-in-law and the man who did that to my granddaughter is probably going to live, and nothing's going to happen to him. So he kills himself. Okay. Uh, let's see here, chapter 18. 
Absalom continues to chase after David, okay? Even though he escapes east over Jordan, east to you, David escapes east over Jordan, Absalom keeps going after him. And when chapter 17 ends, I mean, you find David weak and tired and hungry, and Absalom is strong, ready to go, hot on his heels. He replaces Joab, because Joab is still with David, with a man named Amasa, okay? Important, important, need to remember him, Amasa. In chapter 18, David arrays his army against his own son. Look, this isn't just black words on white paper. Gentlemen, you have a son? Imagine arraying a battle against your own son who's betrayed you. And you know it's because of your sin. That's a problem. David's men tell him, look, you're worth too much. You're not going to fight with us. So David stays back, but he says, he says in front of everybody, and he specifically commands Joab, he says, deal kindly with Absalom. Judah, or, or Joab's men, defeat Absalom's men, kill 20,000 of them. It's in, a, it's in a wood that this takes place. And the Bible says the, the woods were just devouring men up left and right. Absalom had this long hair. He's riding, on, he's riding on a donkey to escape, and you can just see it flowing in the breeze. And it gets caught. Ugh. It gets caught in a tree, yanks him off the donkey, and the donkey just keeps going. And he's hanging there in a tree by his hair. Should have cut your hair, right? Joab finds him, slowly, cruelly kills Absalom. David finds out. David mourns. His heart is broken for his son. And he even says, would God I had died for thee. You know what I see? That's David saying, that should have been me. This is all my fault. Joab doesn't like that too much. In fact, David keeps mourning over Absalom, and Joab is just objective. The man who just betrayed you and is trying to kill you, you're mourning over him? That makes no sense to Joab. Now we're in chapter uh, 19. Joab goes up to David, and he says, look, if you keep mourning in front of your people, you're going to hurt their morale, and you're going to make everyone believe that if everyone would have died but Absalom would have lived, you would have been happy. You need to stop mourning. I, David can't even mourn for his own son. He's an, old, he's an old man. He can't even mourn the death of his son properly. Horrible position. Would anyone want to be in David's position right now? So now that Absalom's gone, he's still east over Jordan and the tribes start arguing with each other. Well, we need to bring David back and make him king. But it seems like Judah, who has Jerusalem within their borders, is basically saying, well, how's David going to feel coming back to the people who made Absalom king? But David shows compassion. He says, Judah, you're my brothers. I'm from your tribe. Bring me back. Bring me back over. And here's a token of my compassion to you. I will keep Amasa as my commander-in-chief instead of Joab. We know Joab. How's Joab going to feel about that? So Judah says, deal. They go over east to Jordan, and they start bringing David back. We run into a couple stories here that are important. Shimei, the kicker-thrower spitter guy, comes to David now that David's king again. I'm sorry. Shouldn't have done what I did. And David looks at him and he says, I forgive you. I won't put you to death. You're going to put that deep into your pocket. Okay? Probably for next week or the week after. All right? Keep it deep in there. Let it grow some moss on it. All right? Uh, Mephibosheth meets him on his way back. Tells David, Ziba lied. He told me he was, coming, he was going to get the car and come back and get me, but he didn't come back, and Mephibosheth is crippled, so there's no way I could have come to you. He, he lied. And David doesn't know who to believe. So he basically just says, okay, 
figure it out amongst yourselves because originally he had given Mephibosheth all the land, but then he gave Ziba all the land when Ziba said that Mephibosheth didn't like him. And now he said, just split it between the two of you. And Mephibosheth says, I don't want any of it. As long as I can be at the king's table, it's all that matters to me. That's a good lesson. We don't need anything else from the Lord, do we? We get to sit at his table and he takes care of us. That's all we need. Lord, if you want to bless us with more, thank you. But I don't need any of it. Just let me be called your child. Israel, the other ten tribes who, were, who had the, the idea in the first place to bring David back, find out that Judah's bringing him back. They don't like that. So they go up and say, what are you doing bringing David back? It was our idea in the first place. And Judah looks back and says, well, guess what? He's not only our king, he's our family. And Israel says, oh, yeah, you're just Judah and Benjamin. We have ten tribes behind us, and they just start fighting. And there's a man named Sheba, and he's from the tribe of Benjamin, but the Bible says he's a man of Belial. And this is chapter 20. 20. Sheba uses this as an opportunity. Okay? And he basically says, well, it's obvious if we're not from the tribe of Judah, then David doesn't care about us. And all of the tribes depart in unrest. David comes back to Jerusalem and he tells Amasa, who is now his commander-in-chief, we need to find the Sheba character. And he doesn't say kill him, but he says we just need to, to get him under wraps. Or what he does to us is going to be even worse than Absalom. So he sends him to do it and he says, Amasa, I want you to take care of this in three days. Amasa takes too long. So then he sends Abishai, and Abishai gets sent after, and Joab is just kind of sitting there on the sidelines. So Joab, unbeknownst, goes, and he finds Amasa and kills Amasa, and then he goes and finds Sheba and has Sheba killed as well. David's back on the throne, but he's losing control. I mean, the tribes are at unrest with each other, fighting and bickering. This was never happening before chapter 11, okay? Chapter 21, God sends a famine because of an old sin of Saul. I mean, the whole chapter is just filled with punishment and war, and yes, victory is given, but only through long, hard-fought battles over giants. Chapter 22 and 23 are key chapters of the book. So with David approaching his death, he writes a song that kind of walks down memory lane here. And chapter 22 of 2 Samuel is actually a mirror of Psalm 18. It's the same song, okay? Uh, so in 2 Samuel 22, the Bible says, He wrote the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. So in this great time of sadness of David's life, I mean, just picture him as an elderly man sitting on the throne, mourning the loss of his sons and the, the rift in his family, the immorality that's come into all of it, the, the disunity that's come through it all. Even through all of this, he writes this song with this message of hope. And he basically says, God has always been faithful. He's always been faithful to me. And all that I am, all that I have, all of my victories are because of God. That's it. In chapter 23, uh, it contains David's final words. And again, there's a message of hope. And I want us to read that together. Chapter 23, verse 3. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. David is describing who a king should be. He should be just ruling in the fear of God. He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. And look what he says in the very first part of verse 5. Although my house be not so with God. What is, what is David saying? I failed at that. I didn't do it. I failed at that. But look at how he ends in verse 5. Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. 
But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. He's talking about my kingdom didn't match up, but salvation is going to come, and my desire is going to come. Who do you think he's talking about? He's talking about Christ. He's talking about the Messiah. There is hope to come. Chapter 23 ends with talking about David's mighty men, all of David's mighty men. And then chapter 4 ends with the story of David numbering the people and God punishing him because of it, and David can only stay the plague when he gets right with God. And atonement, and he actually does a burnt offering and then a peace offering, and the plague is stayed. Now, when you see these last two things, David's mighty men and then this plague that comes with numbering the people, you're tempted to think this is out of place. Uh, doesn't it just practically, and I'm not trying to trap you, doesn't practically, if you're going to end a book, end with the prophecy about the Messiah, right? End with David's last words to his men talking about how a Messiah is going to come. But when you think about it, it all makes perfect sense, okay? And I'm, uh, I'm done here, okay, uh, wrapping this all up here. Where did David gain most of his popularity from? His military power. His military conquest. That's why he was an amazing king. And with every victory over his enemies, his reputation grew. People looked to him. And he was. He was a great warrior king. And this is all shown throughout 2 Samuel. It's certainly shown in 2 Samuel 23 when it talks about his mighty men. Read the stories of his mighty men and what they did. Some of them are killing bears killing lions in a snowy pit with their bare hands. One of them comes across a, a giant, steals the giant's spear, and kills the giant with his own spear. And yet all of these men, just all of them, without doubt, look to David as their leader. What does that tell you about David as a leader? He's a good leader. He's an incredible warrior. He's an incredible king. However, so David is known from a child, isn't he, as the one who slew his 10,000s? He conquered all of his enemies, but there was one thing that David couldn't conquer. What was it? What was it? Sin. He couldn't conquer sin. Why did David number the people? Why would he do that? Look in chapter 24, verse 1. And, the ang and again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Why do you think God is angry with Israel? Just for no reason or because of sin? Sin. And that's why punishment is going to come. So we could say this. David conquered enemies, but he couldn't conquer the enmity between a holy God and a sinful people. He couldn't conquer that. So the hope foretold of in the beginning of chapter 23 is true. Yes, hope is going to come, but it's not going to come through man, and it's not going to come through military might. Because if it would, David's mighty men, are you going to get more military might than that? And I mean, uh, if your life looked like David's, would you not be happy? If people said that as a Christian like David, would you not be happy? So if man could do it, and if military might could do it, David would have done it. But the Bible's saying that's not how it is. What does the Bible say? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. The hope foretold of is true, but it's not through man, not through military power, because men and military power mean nothing when the power of sin is still present. Somebody has to deal with the sin. So think about this. What do we have in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. So it starts out with a priestly couple that can't have children. And they give birth to a son named Samuel. Samuel anoints a king, David. David becomes king at 30 years old. Conquers his enemies. Can't conquer the enmity. The next time in the Bible, we see a priestly couple that can't have children, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, they're going to give birth to a son named John. John is going to announce Jesus. 
Jesus begins his earthly ministry saying the kingdom of God is at hand at age 30. Both of them were betrayed by people who ended up going out and hanging themselves. And is Jesus going to conquer like David did? Isn't that what they were all asking? Jesus, are you going to conquer? Are you going to set up your kingdom? Are you going to get rid of the Romans? And Jesus says, yes, I'm going to conquer. But I'm not going to conquer the enemies. I'm going to conquer the one thing that David couldn't conquer. I'm going to conquer the enmity. Doesn't the Bible say, by his death, he slew the enmity thereby? That's what Jesus did. Praise God for such a savior. And that's what First and Samuel is all first and second Samuel is all about. Men always fall short. Even the best of men with the greatest of military power, nobody has been able to conquer sin. David gave in to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, which by the way, Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness, and Jesus overcame. And while he could have called 10,000 angels and left us here to die. He died for us so that we could be righteous and we could have eternal life. And he's coming again. He's coming again, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king to set up his eternal kingdom. And you and I will serve and reign with him. And the Bible just tells us one thing to do in the meantime. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.